we know now that's not true. We know that whoever has the most stable environment is going to be more secure in the long term. You can make your own air above your country, American airspace. You can't make an American atmosphere. Right? This is the Mad Scientist podcast. Yes, let's get mad. Let's get really crazy. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Elizabeth Shalecki, Associate Professor of International Relations and Environmental Sustainability at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. Dr. Shalecki will be talking to us today about the implications of climate change on the future Army, climate manipulation and geoengineering, as well as the lack of policy surrounding these topics. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Dr. Schlecki, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Oh, we're excited too. So let's start off. Can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, your background, what you're, what you're researching, and, and how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. I'm an associate professor of international relations and environmental sustainability at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. And I have always been interested in security and global affairs. But way back when I was in university, there was the Soviet Union, and that meant nuclear weapons. So if you were interested in security, you looked at nuclear weapons in a, in a bipolar international relationship with the East and the West. Uh, then the Soviet Union fell apart, and we now have to redefine security. And as I was working in the government after graduation, I was on a trade trip to the former Soviet Union, inspecting uranium mines, of all things. And we were taking a tour through where they mined uranium. And in this former Soviet Union, the way they mined uranium was they would shoot sulfuric acid into the ground to leach out the uranium. Now you can imagine this got into their water table and all around the area where we're looking at where the mining operations are with, with broken pipes and strange looking puddles and leaky drums and all around this area, rife with chemical smells were the orchards and the gardens where the people grew their food. So that night, the state energy ministry throws a dinner in our honor, visiting American trade delegation. We're not enemies anymore. And so on the table is the first course, and it's all the food that was grown in the area. And the people were so proud that they had given us the best food that they had for the visiting diplomats. And I looked at that food and I thought to myself, this food is poisoned. And yet it's all they have to eat. And it was at that moment that I became an environmentalist. I hadn't been one before, but I realized that it doesn't matter how many nuclear weapons you have. It doesn't matter how much, how many armed forces you have or how many weapons you have. If you can't protect your environment, if you can't make sure that your ecology is stable, then nothing else you do is gonna be built on a stable foundation. It perturbs every level above it when you perturb the lowest level. So I got back on the plane and I shifted my career entirely to environmental security. And here I am now on Mad Scientist Podcast. You know, climate change is a, a real and profoundly important issue that we're seeing the effects of now. And some have argued that it's the great challenge uh, of our generation and it'll only get worse in the future. Can you talk a little bit about some of the broader global security implications, uh, as well as some of the issues that a future U.S. Army might have to face? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that question, Luke. Um Climate change is not just the issue of the generation, it's the issue of the 21st century. If we don't figure out how to respect the environment, 
in all of our endeavors, whether they're security related or economic related or political related, we're not going to have a 22nd century. And so to try to address climate is to address it beyond security. But you asked about the security implications globally of climate change. And this affects the stability of relationships between nations, between every country and how it's going to thrive. Um, we define security broadly. That's what broadly means. And the security implications of climate change are enormous. The primary effects are going to be temperature increases. They're going to be precipitation changes. They're going to be sea level rise and extreme weather events. And all of this then goes on to destabilize the systems that countries build on. So, for example, you have temperature increases and precipitation changes. This affects agricultural output in countries, maybe more, maybe less, maybe at different times, maybe different crops. This can affect food security. And if one thing a government has to do is keep their people fed. So if they can't, then you're going to get civil unrest and maybe food riots. And then maybe you have refugees and maybe these refugees are coming from different areas. And now you have a border problem. So the first order effects go to the second level, and the third level, and the fourth level. Precipitation changes can be floods and droughts. It can mean more extreme weather events like storms and hurricanes. Now you have displaced people. Now you have greater disease vectors. Um, increased temperature changes may have a public health effect. If you've got uh, vectors like mosquitoes who now have new ranges, then they can bring new diseases with them. We see diseases migrating all around the world. Uh, and sea level rise, of course, is going gonna, is gonna to cause uh, loss of land and loss of coastal infrastructure. Issues that the army will have to face, basically, I mean, it's all of this, certainly, in terms of the national security strategic priorities of the country. But even in terms of recruiting and operability, the army will have to address these issues. What happens when you have an increasing number of infectious diseases around? This is going to impact your recruiting pool. This is going to impact the disease profiles of the places your soldiers are sent, so they have to keep current on their vaccinations. We seem to be having a bit of an anti-vax problem in this country right now. So how are you going to persuade soldiers that they need to get more vaccinations? Um, this is going to affect the public health conditions of places where the army would be sent for uh, operations other than war or stability operations, as it's called now. Now you're going to have the army or other armed forces uh, evacuating refugees, providing humanitarian relief, providing medical ships, providing drinking water and food, uh, trying to evacuate people, trying to keep the peace among warring factions increasing numbers of refugees moving around. So you might actually have the army called in to keep order. You might have the army called in to uh, secure borders. You might have them be called in to lend weapons and military expertise, depending on the situation. So climate change is a huge issue that's going to come all the way up to the operational and recruitment readiness levels of the U.S. Army. I, I think those are excellent points and, and amazing insights because I'm curious as to your thoughts of you know, how much does that impact in the homeland as well in terms of having to deploy the National Guard exactly. uh, for climate crises? Um, it does it change, in your opinion, you know, kind of the paradigm on national security for the U.S.? I think it expands the definition of security. We have been stuck in this Cold War method of thinking for a long time about security means weapons. And really, when you think about security studies of international relations, it came out of war studies. The whole field came out of the studies of, of how to wage a war. And you did that with weapons in the past. But we are still thinking of this as one state's weapons versus another state's weapons. And whoever has the most weapons is the more secure. We know now that's not true. We know that whoever has the most stable environment is going to be more secure in the long term. Only here's the rub, right? You, you can't separate your environment from another country's environment, right? You can make your own air above your country, American airspace. You can't make an American atmosphere. 
And it's interesting to think that when I wrote my doctoral dissertation about the national security ramifications of climate change back in 2008, I couldn't get anyone to talk to me about this. They thought I was nuts. The environmentalists thought that the security stuff was unrelated and that that was the province of jackbooted thugs. And then the security folks thought that the environment stuff was unrelated and that that was some special interest by, by seed-eating, Birkenstock-wearing liberals in Berkeley. And you could not get these two communities to talk to one another and understand that they had a common interest. Now, I mean, climate change is included in the national security strategy of the United States and other countries as well. So over 13 years, that's progress. We do have to ask, are you wearing Birkenstocks right now? I'm not. No, no. <laughs> it's winter in Nebraska. No Birkenstocks. No. Yeah. Good, good point. Yeah, um, you know, I, w- I want to go back to one of your, your answer to the first question that Luke asked you. I, I think what's really important is a lot of times when we think about climate change, we're th- a lot of people are thinking about just the physical environment and the disease vector thing is in, incredibly important and is obviously, as we've seen from this pandemic, uh, even more so now. And if we don't if we do not do something to mitigate the effects of this and the encroachment in wildlife, we're going to see more and more dangerous diseases come out of that to begin with. Yes, we will. Um, so let's shift a little bit and talk about climate manipulation and geoengineering. So, I mean, we know countries are researching this for not nefarious reasons right now to try to combat climate change, but what about the other side of the coin? How could you use something like this as a threat and what are the security implications there? Well, the security implications basically rest on that broad definition of security. We're not gonna be able to aim geoengineering at another country. That's not how it works. It's a, a planetary changing technology. And before I get into the actual technologies, let me um, go back to the idea of how we conceptualize a security threat. We've been talking, and and I'm one of the people that's been doing this, we've been trying to get military and security policy planners to understand climate change as a security threat or the security ramifications of climate change. The downside of this though, is the more we conceptualize climate change as a security threat, remember we're still thinking of security as something you fight or something you fight for with a weapon. So now the weapon is gonna be geoengineering. Oh, well, if climate change is a security threat, let's geoengineer the climate, let's use this weapon to to stabilize our climate and to make sure that we can still thrive. So the term geoengineering is very broad. It encompasses two main categories of technologies. And then within these two categories is all different kinds of other technologies. So the two different types of technologies basically are what we call solar radiation management or solar geo. And this involves blocking sunlight, bouncing it back out of the earth's atmosphere before it has a chance to hit the ground and re-radiate its infrared heat. So in other words, it's like a sunshade. And it could be one big thing, it could be lots of little things, it could be reflective surfaces. That's, you know, that's one method of, of climate control. The other one is what we call carbon dioxide removal. And this basically means sucking CO2 straight out of the air and sequestering it somewhere underground or in rocks or in trees or whatever, and locking it, locking it away. When you think about it, that's what we did when we burned fossil fuels. You pull carbon out of the ground and put it in the atmosphere. Now we need to do the same process in reverse. These two types of technologies have different feasibilities, they have different time horizons, and they have different costs. The one that's most problematic from a security perspective is solar geo, because this is the faster acting, the cheaper generally, and the one that is deployable unilaterally by countries. Now, as I mentioned, you can't just aim these at another country. So this isn't something that's going to be an offensive weapon used in traditional geopolitical terms. Instead, it's going to be something where we are trying to fight the security ramifications of climate change, protect ourselves. And I think we get a little careless with the atmosphere. We figure if it's good for us, we're a sovereign state, we can do it. So who cares what happens to other countries? It's not our problem. What are the potential ramifications then 
outside of, you know, as you said, if it's good for us and it works for everybody, what are some of those second and third order effects that could happen um, to outlying nations, especially we, we've seen in the past where maybe something works for, you know, so, so-called first world nations um, and you see uh, the less developed nations suffer in, in the long term. I couldn't get too specific in terms of the ramifications. I can hypothesize generally, but a lot of these are still, these technologies still, is still in their infancy, as you pointed out, nations are researching these, but we haven't really had any major level deployments yet. In fact, uh, one test of sulfur aerosols, actually it wasn't sulfur, it was calcium aerosols, um, that were going to be deployed over the northern part of Sweden was just canceled by the Swedish government. And so we don't really have good empirical data about how some of these work. And that's what these experiments are for. Right now, it's all been tested via computer model, which tells us a lot, but not, it's not the same as a real world test. The problem is, once you have a real-world test, you've, you're actually using it in the atmosphere. You can't back up. You can't then say, "Oops, we shouldn't have done that," and, and try to stop. You know, I mean, you can stop, but you've already done some damage. So we need to consider if research in this field is to continue, which I think it's going to. It's not a matter of should; it will. We need to consider how to govern it, how to make sure that what is going on in the global commons, the atmosphere, the high seas, is in the interest of every nation. Most kinds of technology that's land-based, like tree planting or um, weathering or uh, reflective surfaces, most of this can be done on land and it's subject to the laws of that country. Anything that's happening in the commons, though, is subject to international law. So we need to make sure explicitly the geoengineering is subject to international law, which right now it isn't. No, I think that's a great point and, and segues well um, into another question we had. But but first, I think, you know, you, you bring up a great point that relates to when we talked to um, Mr. Richard Kidd, um, who's the uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for uh, Energy and Environment Resilience. Um, and, you know, he made the point of uh, there's certain actions that are classified as mitigation, certain that are classified as adaptation, and then others that are looking to actually roll back um, climate change effects. And I think sometimes uh, we, we have, because we have this engineering prowess in today's uh, scientific world that we have the tendency to believe that we can just engineer our way out of it. Um, and I, I think that's an excellent point. And so that kind of segues to, you know, rapid technology advancement usually means policy lags behind. We've seen it on the podcast where we have folks talking about uh, AI, robotics and autonomy, um, biogene editing. The policy tends to be far behind and sometimes substantially far behind. Where is the policy on climate manipulation, geoengineering in the United States, globally, uh, and, and what do we need to do to get it where it needs to be? Well, we don't have any policy right now. Uh, this is not illegal, what we're talking about doing. Um, bits of international law could apply to particular types of technologies, but there is not an overall geoengineering policy in this country or globally. When I say bits could be governed by particular treaties or conventions, I'm thinking about, for example, sulfur aerosols could potentially be governed by the Long Range Treaty on Transboundary Air Pollution um, that was signed in 1979 or went into effect in 1979. And uh, it wasn't written with geoengineering in mind. So if a particular attempt to put particles into the atmosphere is classified as pollution, it might be governed under the terms of that treaty. Likewise, the Environmental Modification Convention of 1977 says you will not modify the environment with hostile intent. Well, there's a big loophole right there in terms of hostile intent. Well, how do you determine what's hostile? We've never actually adjudicated 
anything on that term. So we don't know what hostile means. We think we know what it means. We know what it meant when, when um, the United States dropped defoliants on Vietnam and tried to cloud seed and, and create monsoons and rains. But we've never, we've never applied it to geoengineering and it wasn't written with geoengineering in mind. Um, you've probably heard the saying, we have space age technology, medieval institutions and stone age brains. Just like the other technologies that you mentioned, this same conundrum applies to geoengineering. We think, we, hey, we could do something cool. This might help us out of a bind in the future, so let's give it a whirl. And we haven't really thought through all of not only the security implications, but the economic and political implications and the moral implications of this. You mentioned less developed countries. They're not the ones deploying this. They are the ones who would tolerate whatever we do. And so we have to really consider if we have the technological prowess to be able to deploy any of these technologies, what does that mean? What, what other things should we be considering? And the only way to keep this respectable, if you will, is that it has to be governed internationally. It has to be governed by the UN or some arm of the UN. I, I think that makes a lot of sense because um, we, we tend to think about, again, those solutions um, I can build a dam that can solve a number of my energy problems or um, my own flooding issues or water control overall. Um, but then maybe upriver, um, my neighboring, you know, whether it be county, city, country, uh, is suffering from further drought and or uh, flooding. This is a geopolitical problem that we've we've reckoned with since we've had dams you know what do you do with the down upstream country has the power here and the downstream country has to suffer what they have to suffer unless they can threaten you into not building it or or letting enough water through to satisfy their needs um we have always looked at this under the paradigm of sovereign states but now it's not just a river shared between two or more countries now we're looking at the whole global atmosphere yeah i think that adds that's a, a different dimension to it so Obviously, you said you can't you can't really aim climate manipulation or geoengineering at a country, but we will feel the effects of it, no doubt, because it affects the entire environment. So is there a way to prepare or defend or mitigate when a nefarious actor uses geoengineering that affects us? Or do you see like a geoengineering arms race happening where country X does something and we respond with this technology and they respond with that technology? Potentially. And I don't want to commit too far to that yet, because, again, the lack of actual empirical experiments uh, limits, you know, we're, we're it, it doesn't it doesn't rain in our imaginations here. So I don't want to I don't want to come out with the doom saying right away. Um, you know, we're never going to get rid of nefarious actors. They're always going to be there. And who's nefarious depends on what point of view you're coming from. But now they're not just armed with a weapon; they're armed with a planet changing weapon. And there's only so much the international community can do to restrain sovereign states. They can even opt out of the UN if they wish to, or get kicked out if they're the rest of the international community thinks they're bad actors. Uh, if a sovereign state thinks that security is at stake, and it might be at stake, they will deploy some form of geoengineering if they think it helps them and they can do it. What we have to do is take away illegitimate avenues for these technologies. Think of what we did when the nuclear, when the atomic bomb was, was developed. We didn't just go around and start using this like a regular weapon. We knew this was something different here, and it required a different paradigm of governance. And so we actually tried the very first task that the brand new UN took up in 1946 was to govern nuclear weapons, to put them under international control so nations wouldn't just be firing these things at one another as just as a regular weapon. It was called the Baruch Plan. And it failed not due to science, but due to sovereignty. It failed because the Soviet Union didn't want to give up its chance at nuclear parity with the United States. And we ended up with a nuclear arms race. And at that high point of the arms race, I believe there were almost 70,000 nuclear weapons in the world in the mid 80s. 
70,000 nuclear weapons. Stop and think about that number for a minute. 70,000 nuclear weapons. And mainly the United States and Soviet Union. All the other countries that were nuclear had a couple hundred. That's really all you need for deterrence purposes. Why do you need 70,000 nuclear weapons? So we nearly had nuclear Armageddon a couple of times, and it was just through technological advancements, dogged diplomacy, and sheer luck that we didn't destroy ourselves and the rest of the planet with nuclear weapons. Now we need to take that same sense of technological caution and apply it to geoengineering. We need a new Baruch plant for geoengineering. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm going to ask a really tough question. Um, from Dr. Elizabeth Shalecki's perspective, what in the case of geoengineering and climate manipulation, what is a best case outcome and what is your worst case outcome? The best case outcome, this is going to be, you're going to think I'm naive as heck, but I think the best case outcome was, is that one of these experiments is going gonna, is gonna to go wrong or is going to not turn out to be as helpful or maybe a little bit more destabilizing than we think it's going to be. And the world finally gets some common sense about this and says, hmm, maybe we shouldn't give it one mitigation. We need to decarbonize the energy supply and do it rapidly. Again, looking at geoengineering as a term, the carbon dioxide removal options are much more palatable. They take longer, they're more expensive, but they're much less destabilizing of the global environment. You're sucking carbon out of the air and sequestering it somewhere. Awesome. It doesn't matter where you do it. It doesn't matter whose country is doing it. Carbon mixes throughout the atmosphere. So that's fine. It's the, it's the solar options that are more concerning. So the best case scenario is that we try some experiment, it doesn't do what we expect it to, and um, you know, we, we finally get our heads on straight about decarbonization of the energy supply. The worst case scenario is that we do have some sort of geoengineering arms race. And again, I'm talking about solar. One nation tries something, it doesn't work. Another tr nation tries something to offset this. And this technological hubris is going to destabilize the environment maybe more than climate change would have. We already know that this is going to happen. You know, it's like, it's like trying to change the tire on a moving bus, but we can really have some very poor outcomes because of this. And it's our idea of sovereignty that makes us think to ourselves, well, I don't care if it's poor for someone else as long as it's not poor for me. But we don't have that idea of the whole planet functioning as one. We don't see the interconnection of the global ecosystem. And so a poor outcome somewhere is going to be a poor outcome everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't... Um... You, again, climate, the climate doesn't have sovereignty. It's, uh, or rather it has sovereignty over ultimate, ultimate sovereignty, sovereignty over the entire globe. There yeah. isn't, um, there isn't climate change for the U S there isn't climate change for China. There's climate change for all of us. Um, absolutely. So what, what are we missing? What is the army and the, the larger DOD? What are we not thinking about enough when it comes to these topics? Well, with regard to climate change, there's two things I can think of. With regard to climate change, I think you're going to see an increase in what you would call environmental terrorism. And the reason I say this is because we can see the effects of climate change building up, and yet we see government after government failing to address it. We see Companies moving very slowly, energy companies, car makers, and so on, moving very slowly to deal with this. Governments are dragging their feet. And you have a whole media ecosystem that is pretending this isn't happening. And so even though most Americans want the country to deal with this, want the government to deal with this in some way, they're not dealing with it. And the effects are getting worse. And you're going to see people take matters into their own hands. So you're going to see an increasing level of distrust of the government, anger that we can't seem to get anything done on this issue. And they're going to they're going to start acting more radically. The second thing was what we were just talking about is that you need to rethink or we already need to rethink what sovereignty means. 
we have we have always assumed that sovereignty means inviolable territory that what goes on in your country stays there what goes on in my country stays there we can negotiate as equals or we can make war on each other but territorial sovereignty means my border is sacrosanct now we know that's completely not true so we have to rethink what it means to be a country we have to rethink what it means to be a citizen Maybe we're not citizens of countries anymore. Maybe we're citizens of ecosystems, right? This is the Mad Scientist podcast, yes? Let's get mad, let's get really crazy. What does it mean to be a citizen of a country? What's the difference? If I'm you know, sharing a watershed with another country, don't I have more in common with the people in that watershed than people at the other end of my country who don't share the same watershed? So maybe we need to be citizens of the basin or citizens of the biome or citizens of the ecosystem and not citizens of a country. Or maybe we need to make countries line up with ecosystems. Very interesting points. I had I'd never thought that way before. So, but um, so Beth, we're gonna we're gonna transition to our rapid fire questions now. And as we transition, I just want to bring up one point because you talked about um, ways to block sunlight out so it didn't hit the Earth and radiate back. And and if you'll recall, I believe the Simpsons did this. Mr. Burns tried to block the sun out, and I know I know uh, correlation doesn't equal causation, but he ended up getting shot in the end of that. So let's not. Bl- let- Let's not block the sun out. How did I miss that episode? I'm going to have to go hunt that one down. So now that we've got that out of the way, let's let's get on to the rapid fire question. So uh, what's a, a threat or a trend that keeps you up at night that we haven't already talked about? That we haven't already talked about. I was going to say climate denial. Um, just people who say, you know, this isn't happening or I can't think about it or I don't have the imagination to, uh, to envision a different future. Therefore, we must continue on the same as before. Those people keep me up at night because they make me angry. This is the future of the planet we're talking about. Yeah, no, that's acceptable. We, we didn't really, I mean, we mentioned climate denial, but we didn't really talk about it. So that that's acceptable. Um, what's something about you that most people might not know that you're willing to share? Mm, I once got out of a speeding ticket by pretending to be a Canadian. Okay, you got to tell us more about that. How did that work? I, well, I was, uh, you know, speeding and uh, got pulled over and I convinced the guy that I had read kilometers and miles wrong because I was just from Canada, eh? And so I put on the Canadian accent and I said, well, I just moved here, eh? And so I need to I need to work this out. And so he believed me. Or maybe not, I don't know, but I kept a straight face with the whole thing, so I'm pretty proud of it. Either way, it worked. Either In way, the it end, worked. it worked. Yeah. That's awesome. What is your favorite movie? My favorite movie? Um, my first one that comes to mind is Sneakers, all the way back from 1992. Awesome cast, uh, cool technology for the time hilarious plot and the good guys win in the end formula for a great movie have you guys you guys have seen this right i haven't watched it since i was a kid it's been a long time you gotta go back it's hilarious the technology is a little dated but it's hilarious i'll have to watch it again it's been a long time since sydney portier just passed yeah you need to go and uh, watch it for his sake adding sneakers to the watch list right now all right well beth that that wraps it up we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about what is a a very important and significant topic and giving us some some great background and information on it so so once again uh, oh actually before we go do you have anywhere that people can follow you or see your work? Are you on Twitter or anything like that that you'd like to tell people about? I am not on social media. I like my privacy, but um, I can send you guys a link if you wanted to see the, I've got a works page at UNO here and I can certainly send people some, I can send you the link to that. If people want to look at it, they can. Perfect. We'll put that up on the yeah. blog post. So uh, Beth, thanks for coming on the show and talking to us today. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Luke. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. This was a great fun. Let me know if you guys want to get really mad again. I'll do it. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Shalecki. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. 
This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.